0: This week, a lecture on designing African-American monuments with Walter Hood, a professor and former chair of landscape architecture at the University of California. He talks about his landscape plans for a new African-American history museum in Charleston, South Carolina.
1: My ancestors have been isolated, excluded, partitioned, and even given duplicated landscapes. There's been this continuum in America to kind of build a kind of a richness of heritage. And we've really been excluded from a lot of these
0: things. This is part of a class co-taught by former Charleston, South Carolina, Mayor Joseph Riley and Professor Carrie Taylor at the Citadel Military College. More in a moment. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss.
3: At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for another special treat today another world-class presenter, Walter Hood. Walter is the distinguished professor of landscape architecture at the University of California at Berkeley. He was formerly the chair of that department. Among the many distinctions and awards that Walter has received is the, as the prize MacArthur Fellowship Genius Grant Award, Genius award. <laughs> it's hard to get it all in, that he received in 2019. Walter has been acclaimed for his design work in the United States and abroad. Interesting for us here in Charleston, Walter was selected by Splato Festival USA to design exhibits for the, for the festival over the years. I also had the great pleasure of working with Walter through the Mayor's Institute on City Design. In the 21 and a half years of working on the International African-American Museum, we came to discover the history of Gadsden's Wharf and its precise location. Lonnie Bunch, the founding director of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture who was with our class last week said that Gadsden's Wharf was the most sacred site of African-American history in the Western Hemisphere. We were fortunate to acquire that land once the site of Gadsden's Wall for the museum. Harry Cobb, our most distinguished design architect, told me that he had always wanted to have a design project where the site was more important than the building. Harry designed the most beautiful building for our museum, which he termed purposefully un so that the landscape and its design would be preeminent and give the deserved emotional power to the sacred site. Harry and I knew that there was only one landscape architect in our country to consider. And that was Walter Hood. We're so proud to have his design genius at work on this most important project—not for the city, but for this country and the world. And I'm so proud to present to
1: you, my friend Walter Hood. Thank you, Mayor Riley. How's everybody in Charleston, or whichever room you're secluded in? It's great to see all of your faces, young. And of later age. Um, Mayor Riley said he's been working on the museum for about 21 and a half years, and I think, Mayor Riley, that's our tenure together. I think I first met you during a mayor's institute uh, in Macon, Georgia, where Mm -hmm. you gave one of the most amazing speeches I've ever heard from a mayor to talk about cities life and people. And I had never heard a politician speak that way. And so I was really moved by that. And 20 some odd years later, we're still having that conversation. So I really, really uh, honor and appreciate having your friendship. Um, I'm going to share my screen now. And today's talk will be about a half hour, and then we'll have time for questions. Uh, But the name of my talk today is Spirits in the Landscape. Um, I am a Southerner. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and it took me probably close to being in my 40s or so until I actually felt comfortable talking about, how can I say, my Southern upbringing and those spirits that have guided my life. Um, I wanted to start out, you know, just talking about the current context that we're in. I mean, we've heard a lot about the 1619 Project. But this idea for most people of color in this country, particularly African-Americans, is our time in this landscape has been long, but our freedom has been very short. And so how we begin to kind of think about ourselves in a place, right, that at once is foreign, but is also very familiar, you know, we have to find our own path. And as someone working in landscape, I've been keen to look at and I've taken the same map and looked at the establishment of landscapes that we tend to canonize, that are, you know, they hold sacredness in the way we think of our country. When we think of Middleton Plantation, this is 1730s. I remember in undergraduate school, it was the first colonial garden. This preempts. Mount Vernon, this preempts, you know, some of the University of Virginia, some of these other places. So very early as my ancestors have been isolated, excluded, partitioned, and even given duplicated landscapes, there's been this continuum in America to kind of build a kind of a richness of heritage. And we've really been excluded from a lot of these things. And so through these double Theotics and double consciousness. How do we actually deal with these dualities that are at play, these hidden histories? And I do think it's possible to do so. Because if we look at our history and the way we even document our history, race is a big part of it. Even in our maps, we tend to talk about who we are and how we are situated in the landscape. And during most of the 20th century, we have to face up that we were a nation of apartheid. We're a nation that doubled things, one black and one white. And so as I was growing up in North Carolina, there were Negro areas, unbeknownst to me because I was a young kid. But there were also these reminders that you stay in your place. This is the town where my mother was raised. And I remember spending summers here and having, we couldn't go out at night because these signs told us that we couldn't go out at night. This was Klan country. And then, you know, being able to sort of move around the landscape. I remember many trips with my family, you know, going to Atlanta and other places and having to stay in other places that were not deemed kind of normal places. And then these kinds of ideas get played back out in popular culture to the image on the left, which doesn't really deal with the reality of the right. And then when we think of the semiotics of our world, you know, I can't imagine, um, you To erase those images. I don't remember the images of black and white drinking fountains. I don't remember the images of colored entrances, but I can't imagine how does one begin to erase that, even with nature itself, to begin to see a tree as white only versus seeing a tree as something that everybody can share. And then the idea of a specific day. I was reading earlier about The early Memorial Day celebrated in Charleston after the Emancipation, uh, and that literally became a Memorial Day, but you know, for Blacks in the South, there was one day, this is in North Carolina in Asheboro, there was Black Saturday. That was the day you could go shopping. So of course, even when you went shopping, there's a Confederate soldier standing over you. So how do we play out and deal right with that memory and through the past? And I do think that there is a spirituality that we can begin to think about because we didn't end up, we didn't make this landscape that we see and that we always project that we belong to. We were actually put in these places. And then we somehow tend to be a gasp when we have these issues, right, that inflame from the 60s to the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s where people are asking for, right, civil liberties. They're asking for protection. And so when last year, during the George Floyd moment where we saw Black Landscapes Matter just being pasted across the street, in a way, this was another wake-up call. But it's not the first wake-up call. And so how do we continually begin to kind of think about these things? And it made me dwell back on my childhood growing up in Charlotte. And I remember in high school that they put in a Pomodoro downtown. And this Pomodoro was this modern sculpture, and we were like, what is this sculpture? And then I read later what the structure actually meant. And Pomodoro, this Italian futurist, was really talking about the future, right? This, um, how can the future of Charlotte be, how can I say, unmitigated and new? And so he used this kind of futurist symbol. And this lasted for about 25 or 30 years And recently I was back in Charlotte. I'm working there, and I noticed that they had changed that entire kind of introduction to the city with this new set of images. And it was installed in 1995. And you have to remember, Charlotte was settled in 1750 and incorporated in 1768. And I wondered, who was that black guy? Why was there a black guy in the middle of town? There wasn't a black guy in the middle of town when I was raised. And it turns out that he's depicting the railroad. And so, going back and looking, did did North Carolina have slaves? Was this a free man? I mean, why in 95 did we choose to depict this history? And I would argue this is the ostensible past, how cities really reclaim the history and want to rewrite the narrative. And in Charleston, as I've noticed from your reading list, you've seen a lot of this, right? From the early parts of the 20th century to changing the narrative of the Civil War. And how do you actually allow for the history? Right, of Blacks to be present alongside the history of whites. I mentioned that Mayor Riley, I met him in Macon, Georgia, and this is a project that I won a competition for. And this is like 1998, 1999. That's the Daughters of the Confederacy. We cleaned it off. We made a set of yards that talked about a kind of a blue-collar, um, how can I say, relationship. We wanted people to see the obelisk because it was hidden. And we wanted to make it more visible. So we made fountains to go around it. And then I placed cotton bells next to it. And I wanted there to be this, this, how can I say, tension between this fiction of the Daughters of the Confederacy and this reality of this place being a place that stored cotton. Now, this is 20 years ago. And people were, how can I say, somewhat abstractly not interested in this idea. <laughs> I was actually black-faced at the club um, I'm trying to remember who was the mayor at the time, who now was a senator, but he sent me letters that, Walter, you're being portrayed you know, in blackface with a mop hanging over your head as this kind of radical guy from California coming to talk about making yards. In the last year, people have asked for that statue to actually come down. So in a way, you know, this was a prelude to the moment that we're going through now. So in Charleston, then we have, I think, this moment where these new semiotics are beginning to challenge how we actually think about ourselves. We have Mr. Vesey on the right, and we have the bench by the road on the left. And these are two new things. And as I was reading this piece this morning, they're not in, how can I say, the central part of Charleston. They're in sites, whether at the racetrack or whether out at Fort Moultrie. They're in these kind of spaces that are we don't see every day. And I tend to argue that we need more places and spaces that we actually visit every day, that we see every day, so that we have a way to recollect and our spirits are with us all the time, that our spirits are not just pushed off to the sides, but they're actually with us daily. And how we might do that, I'm going to show you a few projects that begin to kind of tease at this idea. This first one is the Catherine Foster Homestead in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is the ecumenical village on the left, and south of that was a place called Canada, and this was a place for free black slaves. But as they were moving the campus to the south, they actually found this interned uh, homestead, and they found these beautiful bricks and this beautiful mortar work, and as they dug deeper, it revealed a foundation, and it revealed a place where Kitty Foster had bought a piece of property, and then she went to work for the university. We were able to sort of create this historic archaeological site and actually frame the narrative. And I wanted it to speak more to the kind of the spiritual side that I remember growing up in North Carolina, going to cemeteries and actually giving the spirit a ride to heaven. And every time we would place flowers at the grave, we would use poinsettias and we would turn the foil back. And my grandmother would say, they need a ride. And so this notion of light would hit, would allow the spirit to go. And so when you go to the shadow catcher, it's a place of shadow and light. And it's a place where a portal is actually built. And through this portal, the family is allowed to take that ride. And so you're in constant engagement with the spirit of the family and the diaspora that was here. And this notion of forcing you to use your body in space is something very early that I was interested in, and this notion of phenomena. So when there's no light, there is no life. But when light hits, there is this di- this duality that's at play, right? And a lot of times we only think of things singular. We think of only the light. We never think of the light and the
3: shadow together.
1: And then throughout the site, we try to highlight in a different aesthetic, you know, the, the homestead and its burial ground. The burial ground is actually wrapped around with stone. And we looked at if you bury bodies in wood, the bodies decompose, and you actually get a very beautiful landscape. And so we carved a landscape to mark the interned here on the site. This next project is the opposite. Um, this was completed a year ago, and this is the first time, I mean, a lot of my work has been dealing with exhuming people who look like me. But what's the critique of the other side? What's the critique of the white frame? Right? In white colonialism, we're now beginning to talk more about this. It's like if this country was built on, on whiteness, how do we talk about it and how do we engage it? And so here at Princeton, we had an opportunity to begin to kind of think about that because the students at Princeton, particularly of the Black Student Union, they wanted Woodrow Wilson's name off the School of Public Policy. And so they went to the president's office, locked themselves in, about a half dozen of them, And what came out of that was the trustee said, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll do a competition, right? You've seen the theme here, right? (laughs) We'll do a competition, and we'll see if we can get the best minds to talk about Wilson's good side and Wilson's bad side. So we decided in my studio to do the competition, and we started, you know, understanding Woodrow Wilson. Wilson's from the south very similar. His family, uh, his father was a preacher, I think, and he was this very uh, brilliant man. But at the same time, those brilliant people around him was trying to get him to do the right things. And DuBose particularly wrote a lot about, you know, why won't people kind of think about the other side through this sort of double consciousness. And I got really interested in thinking Could I project DuBose's words onto Wilson and use that as a way to interrogate? And so the piece is called Double Sites. It's located at the central part of campus at the top here. It's located next to the Wilson School. You have the Fountain of Freedom and you have the Rothschild trees, Bosque. These were all donated to the space. This is like the central campus. And the idea is very simple. The marker is vertical. It's a black tower and a white tower. The white tower comes to rest on the black tower. It's made from a square. If you cut a square along its diagonal, the diagonal is the longest side. And what we were able to do then from that is to basically think about the inside. And could the inside be a place where his contemporaries could push at him? And so imagine if this was the metaphor for your insides. Those of you who are privileged, who don't have the consciousness, the empathy to think of others. So this is suggesting that everyone has something inside them, only if they opened up. And then through that, we constructed this architecture that sits between the school and the public plaza. We removed a few of the trees and placed it within that. And then on the inside, his contemporaries' quotes read and loom larger. Everyone from Schrader, to James Weldon Johnson, to W.E.B. DeBose, who's asking Wilson to do the right thing. And as we were making this project, I was struck by the current cultural context that we were in the last four years, where everyone spoke of a certain person, oh, that he would change, oh, he's going to do the right thing, he's going to do the right thing. His consciousness was opened up, and we know that none of that manifests. And so this idea of then taking Wilson's contributions and some of the negativities, and we posted them on the outside in the smaller context. And so when you walk into the piece, you now are, are face-to-face with his contemporaries and Wilson is marginalized to the outside. And also along the inside is reflection and it's reflecting you. And so you become one of those who are pushing Right for righteousness.
3: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: And a funny thing happened on the way to making this memorial or a commemorative piece. The Black Student Union still pushed to get Wilson's name off the school, even after this was erected. On opening day, the president came out and unveiled it. And within a year, the communication continued, and this past summer, one of the trustees came out and read something on the outside of the piece and voted to remove his name. And whether this piece is something that's temporary, you know, we think that it's done its job in showing in giving, how can I say, a new kind of imagery to the site, not through a person of marginalization, but through the contemporaries who consistently are articulating for a better world and a better place. And we tried to make sure that we showed, again, some of our ancestors, you know, insight, from early age to latter age. And then at night, the inside is a glow, and those words speak more powerfully at night. How long must women wait for liberty? Mr. President, what will become of women's suffrage? And what's also unexpected to the piece was the reflective quality of it. So as you move around, the piece is actually reflecting the context, right? which again, is creating those double sites. So that you're constantly part of that double. And the last project I'll talk about in my last few minutes is our project here in Charleston. As Mayor Riley said, I my introduction to Charleston is through Spoleto. And uh, in the early part of the Millennium, Mary Jane Jacobs, who was part of the big show Places of the Past, which actually came in after Hurricane Hugo. And I'm trying to write about that that period of time right now because I would argue, you know, that was the first time that, one of the first times since the civil rights that Charleston really had to deal with that historic past in a powerful way. You know, artists were dropped in and they made projects and they exhumed a lot of this. And it was very, um, I guess, with a lot of tension because Minotti quit <laughs> and then came back. But over a series of 20 years, Spoleto has been dealing with places of the past and places of the future. And it's been a context in which artists have come and given space to actually think about what it means, right, to live in the Low Country. This is our piece, one of five artists, where we did Rice Table, where next to Memminger, we grew rice over three months, and we had this amazing wetland that was in this asphaltic place. But for the first time, it reminded me, right, what's something that I always remember floodplains will always be floodplains, right? These landscapes don't change, right? Just because we just found Gaston's Wharf, Gaston's Wharf has been there, right? I mean, all of this stuff is beneath our feet, it's what we choose to exhume. And so for the International African American Museum, we're charged with creating our ancestors' garden. And I have to just share with you. This is probably for me one of the, I'm going to say, I'm so nervous for this project um, because there's a lot at stake on this project. I'm very nervous, just put it that way. Um, But it's been a great team, as Mayor Riley said, with Harry Cobb, who just passed away the last year, reached out and said, Walter, we need you, we need Guy, we need structure, we need to talk about the story. But this is a different place. It's different than our museum in D.C. This will be a place for families, individuals, groups to advance in the appreciation of the history, and particularly the history in the Low Country, which I think makes this spot really, really powerful. But it also suggests that being in Charleston, finally, it will be in a place of prominence. It will be a place where people will pass it every day. day. As you're going out on a boat ride, you're going to come across the site. As you're promenading along the waterfront coming from the aquarium, you're going to come through the site. As you're coming through the park on a jog, you're going to come through the site. And I like to think about it like the way I think of Charleston now when I go for runs, I run through the cemeteries. Right? I mean, I, 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 I experience the city, and we want this to be something that becomes familiar to people. Again, because something, you know, exists in a map, maps are interesting. It depends on what you want to map. And I tell my students this all the time. They go, well, there was no information on that. That's because someone didn't want to include that information. So the cartographer is in charge, right? So you can go out right now and map, and you can leave out the trees, and people look at the map. but there were no trees. It's what you choose to do. And in Charleston's history, as we know, very early, the history of slavery had to be subserviated. It had to be subserviated to give a new identity to one of the oldest American cities. And so how do you begin to consider then this new semiotic? I showed those two images of Fessy and the bench by the road. You know, Now I would never have figured that Calhoun would come down. Then I mean, you think about the history around Calhoun, the first sets of sculptures that went up. You know, what blacks used to do as they passed the Calhoun statue. I was reading this one quote about how we used to put a little something in our pockets as we would go past Calhoun, right? And so you were ready for Calhoun as you went by. But how do you begin to unpack a lot of these ideas? And very early in the project, we asked Mayor Riley. Let's make sure this is a real site. I remember that day we're standing there. It's like, has there been an archaeological report done? And everybody said, no. (laughs) Mayor Riley said, why not? He said, the site's toxic. And we look out the window and there's some guy down in a hole on Magazine Street digging a hole, right? And so this idea of how do we act? And so the archaeological report was done. We actually found where the line was. Um, And here's a picture of Harry's, I think, which is going to be a beautiful building. This long long bar. It's almost like a vessel that sits up 13 feet off the ground. The columns are two meters wide, almost more than six feet wide, like tapering at the top to give the ground plane this respect. And as we have made the plan, we've tried to make the plan be unfettered by stuff (laughs) and we've taken the north part of the site which is next to your pump house. We've created a sweet grass field because we have to keep that open. And then as you make your way in, you go through what we call these colonial gardens that are shaped like parterres and kind of riffing on Middleton to a certain degree. And then you make yourselves this clearing under the building, which is all tabby. So the tabby creates this ocean floor for activities to take place. And then as you make your way to the south, you get to what we call the warehouse. And this is the place where slaves were stored after they were incubated at Fort Moultrie, Sullivan's Island, and brought here. And we know that when they were stored in some of these in the warehouse, some perished, some get naked. So the site at night will be open. Again, you will visit it in the same way as you visit the other spirits of Charleston. As you enter from the city, We try to reimagine a primary dunescape that you that makes you aware that you're coming to water, and then as you look back to the city, those dunes caress you as that ocean floor of tabby spreads out, and then from the sweet grass coming in from one side, you come through a much more kind of smaller scale pathway system. Looking at the north side of the building, which will be ablaze in light, looking through a a brick fence, again, looking at the, the local cultural landscape, the bricks we know is Charleston and allowing that to become the veil at the edge. There's a stele garden for our ancestors. This will have different voices coming out of rock to relate the different groups that came out of the diaspora from Africa. A changing ethnobotanical garden, because we know the flora will get impacted here at different times, and so this is an opportunity for the museum to talk about the kinds of flora and things that slaves brought with them from West Africa. We have rice planters, places where we can propagate rice, you know, what we learned very early from rice table, this notion of having ritual somehow find its way, and also having program to talk about those qualities of botanics and then looking back to the south, towards the warehouse. We've built a wall, and I think the quote now will be Maya Angelou's uh, and I Rise? Quote will actually brace the front of this. And so as you make your way over to the warehouse, in between this long boardwalk that looks back to the Atlantic, we have a set of kneeling figures that are inspired from the Rice Negroes um, over at Fort Moultrie, and this has been something for me, you know, having never dealt in a lot of figuration, something that we've been constantly going through, but we want this to be a space where people have to come into contact with human figures, right, in a very small, confined as they're looking west, and so currently, you know, we're we're making the models of different scales i'm thinking should they be perched should they be lying down and i've been living with these figures now for the last three months which has been really interesting of how you know how abstract should they be you know should they be black should they be white i mean so these are things again through the design process we we want this moment as you walk through to feel the heinous you know that experience as you're walking through that slot before you come back out to see the harbor And then lastly um, of interest is the Brooks map, which is of a slave ship, the first lithograph that really showed the horrific um, social and psychological and physical qualities of slavery. But this boat, I think, made over 10 journeys uh, to the Indies and to North America. And, And I thought it would be really important to kind of imbue the landscape somehow. Through this kind of density. And we took a boat ride one morning out to Sullivan Island, Fort Moultrie, and back. There were about three of us. And it was one of these feelings that I had never felt as I was thinking right about this diaspora. And it reminded me of the cartoon that they have over at Fort Moultrie. And I was taken aback on one where why didn't they have a real Brooks Mac? And was this a copy? But then again, it stuck with me because it almost looked like a textile. But if you look at it closely, you see their figures uh, laid head to toe, head to toe. And so working with Peikoff and Freed, we've created what we call an infinity fountain. And at the edge of the promenade, we've tilted the ground, and we've lifted the water, metaphorically, up to the level of the museum. And along that edge, we're looking at making figures inundated within the tabby. And these are just some early copies of what those figures might look like etched out, Uh, looking at the shell, we want the shell to go away on the surface but then come out in the bodies. And then as you serialize them, you actually begin to kind of see the quality of light. And unexpected to me as we've been going through the light, I know this is low res, but I just got this the other day, in Mayor Riley, but I thought the light playing against the shells were pretty wonderful. And this idea of having, you know, this this fountain that becomes dry and all of a sudden the light will play against all of these shapes. And this is what the final MACAT would look like. And what you're beginning to see at times, it looks like it's positive or it's negative. And it's actually a relief, a negative relief going along. And all the shells are from the Atlantic Ocean even though they're being made in California. (laughs) Uh, And along that line, we've made the line stainless steel, again going back to this idea of reflection, flash of the spirit, and then as you look back out towards the harbor, the fountain will fill up, and then it will drain out, and those figures will be dominant. And then it will fill up again, and those figures will be dominant. And lastly, I want to just end with a piece that I had at the Chicago Biennale last year is called Three Trees. Um, And I was taken by an article that I had read uh, in the the newspaper in Chicago where they were blaming Obama for cutting down trees in Washington and Jefferson Park. And it occurred to me that they never kind of referred to him as a president. And so I asked for, the could I recycle the trees and make three trees? And so I made three trees in the Library of Chicago, and of course I had to put Obama in there along with Washington and Jefferson. Thank you. Bravo. Woo. <laughs> Hopefully I got through the time. <laughs> so I'm done. <laughs>
2: Walter. Uh, Walter, that was wonderful. And um, one one thing that I was determined to say uh, while we had Walter was this. Um years and years ago, uh Walter working in California and working around the country and around the world and working with the Mills Institute. And and it was I was exhausted just thinking about his work ethic. And it's, and I said, Walter, how do you how do you do it? How do you how are you tending to all these different responsibilities? And he said, well, Joe, he said, you know, um, I have a lot of balls in the air and I'm determined not to let any drop. And, um, and I wanted to say that today to, to the students here and to everyone that, uh, you know, that's part of our life's work. We, we often have lots of responsibilities and um, and we learned to attend to them, try to attend to them all uh, uh, without without letting one drop. So Walter, he laughs every time I say this, but that was just so profound because he was he was worn out. really, you would see him coming back from these meetings or seeing him in making an art one of the places at man's institute uh, with his spirit and smile and everything else and, uh, so that um so Walter knows I've never forgotten that and I give back to the, to the students here just uh, about life's work we, we tend to our responsibilities and uh, we got to keep a lot of balls in the air and the goal is to not let
1: one drop yeah but you you forget the most important piece of that quote <laughs> some do fall. <laughs> you got to know which ones, you have to know which ones to let fall, <laughs> because you can't keep them all in the air, right? And once I learn that some can fall, there's a kind of a freedom, right, it's versus right. That's right. That's I got to right. keep them all. Some are going to hit the ground, but you got to just know which ones to keep in the air. Right? Right. And, th- and that, that means choice, if you can get to the place of choice.
4: So I, I want to just remind uh, our students and guests to put questions in the chat, and I will relay those to Professor Hood. Um, and maybe as we're waiting for those to come in, um, I I uh, was wondering, uh, Professor Hood, if if um, uh, I had you know one or two questions that I I was hoping you no. might speak um you, You've been described as a uh, community whisperer. And I think the, the suggestion there is that you uh, re- understand things about communities even before they realize um, aspects of their own experiences. And I'm wondering if that's Uh, Is that a description that you accept? And uh, just, you know, whether you might speak to that dynamic of being a community whisperer.
1: Uh, I think it has a lot to do It's a project that I was working on in Pittsburgh, the Hill District. And I think uh, they were quoting a neighbor that I had been working with for years. So it's just like, oh, yeah, Walter's a community whisperer. But I think what she was meaning by that was, You know, we try to go out of our way to be good listeners, right? And if you're a good listener, you'll hear things. And then if you just keep listening and at some point you give them back and you give them back through your own lens. And I do think people are appreciative when you listen to them and you're able then to take what they're saying and not just respond right, in kind, but to respond genuinely through what you do. Uh, and I think that has been for us working in very geographies, something that I really value that I'm an expert at what I do, but I know very little about your place a lot of the times, and I have to do the work. I have to do the work. And once you do the work, it then gives you a point of view, right? And it might not always be in Miami, it might not always be the same, but at least, you know, there's a value to that. Okay, I see questions. Yeah, we have a
4: question here from um, Priscilla Shumway, who would like you to, to comment on, I guess, the mechanics of the, uh, the, the pool. Uh, will the water fill up and drain by the tide? Or is that a, a man-made mechanism?
1: Mayor Riley, you raising your hand? Mayor,
2: yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's man-made because it it really has a, a few inches of water. So if we waited for you know six hours of of the tide, uh, it would be that little movement. So it's uh, and I don't know if they've worked out the correct timing yet, but it will be enough that you will notice it. Um, but there would be some some dynamism in there that would be, um, you know, very beautiful. Yeah.
1: And um, in fountains like this, it's basically a small bit of that's water, right. water that's it's filling up. That's, right. that's, that's just right. washing over. So, that's right. and that's why they're called infinity fountains. And so, you know, on a hot day, you know, someone might stick their feet in. But again, it's one of those things where we think the image is going to force a different wish ritual. Um, I think it'll be between 60 and 90 minutes for the entire thing to fill up, swell down. But there will always be water in the piece because it's tilted. And so sometimes the head will have a little puddle, and sometimes the feet will have a little puddle. And that's where the reflective quality comes in. I'm exhausted as well. (laughs) Bob, Bob Brannon would like to
4: know whether you're currently working on projects in Charlotte.
1: Yeah, I'm working on the Discovery Place Museum, uh, which is in uh, Freedom Park. Um, and again, it's one of those places where as a kid, I went and then coming back, you know, and having to redesign it and redesigning actually a, a tree canopy so people can actually walk through the forest, um, which I'm really excited about.
4: And Ginny Deeren has a uh, question and, uh, I guess, comment on your Southern upbringing. Um, in addition to many, many other positive comments that have come in, it, come in through the chat, Ginny says that you, you seem to have a very deep understanding of the South.
1: So well, as a black man raised in, in the South, you have to have a deep understanding of the South. I spent summers in Tobacco Road. Didn't want to, but I had to on my um, uncle's, my uncle was a cropper, sharecropped, right outside of Lillington. And all all the time, I thought he owned the land. <laughs> Even when I went to college, I would brag about my uncle and his tobacco farm. And I just remember my sophomore year in college, I went and I said, Uncle Benaray is like, this is great how many acres you have. goes, this is not my land, boy? This is Mr. Westnot's land. <laughs> and, and that's part of the South, right? But, um, you know, the South is, again, I I made a comment about, you know, there are lots of things about the South I wanted to vanquish. So when I left North Carolina, I changed my speech, you know, because when I moved to D.C., everyone thought I was ignorant, if you had a Southern drawl. But I went through that diaspora, Majority, and I went through all of that. And I remember being in California, and one of my colleagues, White, came from North Carolina. She's a professor. And just listening to her, I was like, damn, she has her accent. <laughs> and I was like, I want my accent, but she's a white woman, and I'm a black man, right? And so, again, really thinking about that heritage. But, you know, working on Spoleto and getting back to South Carolina, it really did give me a renewed interest in my, my past heritage, and it really pushed me to take on projects like this. I mean, we're working in La Vila, Florida right now, which La Vila, Florida was doing reconstruction, was home to James Weldon Johnson. Again, it's like these these amazing places right now. And so it's been it's been a gift and a curse, put it that way.
4: <laughs> and we're uh, there are many, many comments coming in through the chat. So I'll do my best to to uh, relay these to you. Uh, Tyler Mitchell, who's one of our excellent students in the class, asks about the ways in which you've developed and um, the ways in which your imagination may have broadened since working on the International African American Museum. Uh How how have you developed as as an architect?
1: Freedom. I would say the biggest has been freedom. Um, there's been I was I was taken by the board decision to call me one day and say would I take on the ancestors garden. This was not something that was part of the original brief of the project. Uh, this is something that came out of you know our working together and taking that on. You know it was challenging, but it also was empowering. Uh, and I think since it has push me to kind of think that we can be more audacious in the landscape in representation we can begin to put other narratives out there i mean blocks in america we're not one large diaphanous thing we're many things right and i think the project for me is allowing me to be many things that i thought i could never be And so I think projects like this allow people to come together and share. And I really appreciate this opportunity to have people like Harry Cobb and people like Mia Riley that allow you to do what it is you do. In many projects, people won't let you do what you do. I'll just put it that way. That's why I wanted to show the Macon project, which I think is a good touchstone.
4: There are a couple questions regarding your work process, and if you might say a little bit more about how these projects come together and how, how you
1: work. Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, right now in COVID, I get up every morning and I make drawings. <laughs> so, you know, I start every morning making drawings. I paint. Those are paintings behind me. I. Try to like build a context around me in which you know things can come out. Right now, I'm working on three books and being able to write and read. And it's really you know trying to find your renaissance. And I do think if you can get a little writing in every day, if you can get a little music in every day, if you can get a little design in every day, you know, I think you you start to have this this conversation right with culture. And these are things that. You know, I've never really had the space to do, but this past year has given me the space. And in a way, it's it's a new way of working right that that I want these things daily now. I don't go to my office. It used to be I would go to my office where I have fifteen people, you know, you deal with all of that. And in a way, it's this kind of freedom now to put the work out there, but I can be with myself a little bit more.
4: Have, I'm going to collapse a couple questions here. There were uh, one student was wondering about if you might say a little bit more about the influence of older family members on your work. And then looking forward, um, what what will be the legacies of your work for, you know, uh, uh, succeeding uh, generations?
1: Um, the older generation. I mean, I... My mother died when I was very young. I think when I was eight. So my grandmother um, raised me a lot of the time. Um, so so there is a kind of southerness to that, right? I mean, intergenerational. I was just taken by. I was listening to Brian Stevenson last weekend. He was talking about his grandmother. <laughs> I think people of my generation, we talk about our grandmother. We talk about our elders. They had, you know, these big influences in our lives and. I even think back to the the committee that we had, some of the elders, when we first presented the idea of the figures, I remember one of the comments, I don't know who said, she said, we can't have people stepping on bodies, right? And it's like, wow, you know, and so again, listening to that, so we put in a bridge, so that's where the bridge came from. And so again, these kind of responses, um, you know, whether it's a whisper or whatever, but this just makes the work better. I mean, the more voices I think you can pull into the work, the more the work begins to live not only through you, but it lives through the right community to a certain degree.
4: In terms of the uh, legacy of the museum, or uh, how do you hope your your work holds up fifty years from now? What what should we take from from your work? You know, in uh, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. 50
1: years. Well, this is the wonderful thing about landscape, uh, unlike architecture. Landscape is in constant transformation, right? Um, and, you know, I want I would like the contributions to be that, you know, the work kind of speaks for itself. I mean, I can't be the person to project 50 years from now. I mean, I want to make work. I want to put it out there. And I, I do want the work to be consumed. I mean, I don't mean it in a popular way. I want people to find space in the work. And if anything, it's like there are these spaces that I can go to and I get to feel something different. I get to see something different. I get to hear something different. And as of late, I've been thinking a lot about I think this is the question with America it's like, how do we push for difference, right? And how do we celebrate difference? Because colonialism celebrates sameness. It wants to keep creating sameness, which means that difference is always kind of shunned. And diversity just becomes a kind of a medium to deal with sameness, (laughs) right? Diversity is just like, I just have a few. They're just not different. But difference is different, right? And I do think, you know, For someone walking, for a white person walking in front of the Vesey statue, they should see it as different, just as someone walking in front of the Calhoun statue saw it as different. And and those are things I think that's part of the experiment in this country that we're not really good at in the experiment, is accepting others and those differences. Because on one hand, people marginalize, and this goes back to the double consciousness. You know, we've had to take on those things. And I always get this question from students alike who are non-black people. Well, how do I, how do I, how do I work with the black community? And, and here's a simple, simple answer to that is, I had to figure out how to work with the white community. <laughs> so, so it's that simple. You know, I think our lives in this country is actually a way for people to deal with difference. And I think the resiliency, when we talk about resiliency, I mean, resiliency are the aboriginals of this land. They're the ones who are still here. That's resiliency in the face of genocide to still be here. And again, if you think about our ancestors, I mean, I can't imagine you know, being around the early 20th century and having to deal with the possibility of getting tied up and hung from a tree. right? But what do people feel like in the 60s if they're looking back They're going to go out in march, and they know that you're going to get strung up or shot, but they did it anyway, right? And so I do think that, you know, this experiment, I do think we have to sort of get to a place where we want to have that conversation. And I'm hoping this new building and the things that are happening in Charleston can actually be a model for the country to a certain degree, because these are hard things. And again, I showed that map very early. I mean, this is hard. We've only been at this for about... 50 years. You know, we act like we've been trying to do this for 400 years. But hey, you know, we've only been trying it for like 50 years. And in that 50 years, we had to use law to do it. And even using law to do it, you had people pushing back and finding a way to get around the law. And so in a way, we're back where we started 50 years ago, if you think about it. Right? And are we willing to enact any new things? I mean, we got rid of affirmative action. You know, affirmative action was not a handout. Affirmative action was a way to get us to live and be together because we had to be forced to do that. And so, we have a lot of work to do. But I think, you know, I think we're we're moving at least.
4: Walter, I I think we have time for uh, maybe one additional question. And um, you know, some of this you alluded to that you know our political moment has been characterized by grassroots contestations over public space, going back to Occupy Wall Street through uh, the iterations of Black Lives Matter and, you know, even recently with uh, the January 6th uh, riots at uh, the Capitol. And I'm I'm wondering how that has shaped your work and how that is, uh, are, are we seeing that have an impact on landscape architecture?
1: I think we're seeing it have an impact, but I like it to go past painting the street, right? I mean, I think the painting the street is an act of the public realm, but, you know, as I was saying earlier, if you look back in the history of Charleston, the public space has always been that place where identity politics and social unrest played out. I mean, the early days, you know, post-emancipation, you know, the celebration on January the 1st or taking the 4th of July as these celebrations and actually going to Marion Square and these other places and actually, you know, having taking over the space. So this is not something new. I think we should be looking back at all of these examples in our history and why do we keep repeating the same thing, right? Because, I mean, again, because we know where it ends. It ends with The space is going back, the streets going back to just being what the streets are like. And so I think we have to find that place where we will feel comfortable in those spaces with things that might mean something different to one of us being side by side. I think if we start erasing one side, we only get back to that kind of single dimension. I think think we have to learn to deal with these dualities, right, that at the heart of this country we got to deal with these dualities, and we got to take the veil off because there's nothing, I'll just speak to, you know, young brown and black people on the screen here. I mean, the veil is a powerful thing to, for me to walk into a room or space and to, to be, to feel that people immediately look at me, my race first. And they don't even have to say anything, and you know that look. <laughs> you just know that look. And uh, someone was asking me to describe it the other day. And I was like, really? I got to describe it? But you know that look. Uh, I remember being in an elevator at 19, uh, no, maybe 20, in Asheville, North Carolina. My first job as an intern. And I'm on the elevator. I got my suit, my tie on. And I'm looking around. They're all white people. And this is in like 1979 or so. And they First person, they looked at me. And they were like, "What are you doing in the elevator?" That it was like the first question. Is like, <laughs> this doesn't go up? It's <laughs> like, "What are you doing in the elevator?" Right. And so these are things that stay with you. <laughs> okay.
4: Great. Well, thank you so much, Mayor. Um, I'll turn it back to you for for some wrap up comments. But um, Professor Hood, I, I, uh, there are many, many additional. Very favorable remarks put in the chat, and I wish we had time to relay those all to you. But uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Professor Taylor, and
2: uh, Walter. Thank you. You know um, what you are creating in the landscape. Um, we will we will never forget. I mean, we will be long gone, but but the but it will always be there. Those who who are in that. Powerful landscape, uh, confronted and challenged, and uh, and heartened and 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 heartened and, and heartached by it. Uh, the beauty, the the hope, the future, the sad past, the wonderful opportunities that what 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 you create there, Walter, will be will be a continuing gift uh, to. people who come and then and then Walter we we will not forget you today. I think we've got lots of uh we had a 300 people I think or so in the audience and students and and grandparents and everything in between and uh to hear a, a brilliant and thoughtful person uh give us the priceless gift of his time and uh and, and thoughts is a, is really wonderful, uh, Walter. We just—I'm so grateful. Thank you. I look forward to having you back, and certainly in the in the June or July of 2022, when we opened the International African American Museum, and I get goosebumps just saying it. And we see the powerful work of Walter Hood. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you, guys, and I wish everyone. A really safe spring, beginning of spring. Uh, but one thing I'd like to just say about our site, Mayor Riley. You know, one of the things I'm always touched by is that this site used to be a public space. It was a park, and I was out at the site one day, and a couple asked me to come into their condo and look down on the site. <laughs> and I asked them, "Are they going? Are they going to miss the park now that they're getting this thing?" And they said the park didn't have any memories. <laughs> and, and they gave this eloquent, they waxed eloquently about that they were looking forward to having this new landscape to be in daily. And that stuck with me because, you know, to change your sociology in space, sometimes it is really hard for people right? You know, they got rid of the road. They, they moved this. You have to change your way of life. And for a lot of people, I think the site is going to be different, but I'm hoping that it will help heal, but also get people to kind of see the world around them differently. So thank you all. This was a pleasure. You have a cherished, uh, you have a national hero, Mayor Riley, who's teaching a course. I want to be in all of these lectures. You guys are really, the students, you guys are getting a great, great education this
0: semester. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast about books. Each episode delves into news about the nonfiction book publishing industry with publishing experts and insiders. You'll also hear reports on the latest nonfiction bestsellers, trends, and book reviews. About books. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.